following podcast is sponsored in part by the Blue Ridge Institute for Theological Education and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about these institutions, please visit their websites at bright-va.org. That's B-R-I-T-E-V-A.org or bts.education. And now, here is Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism. Howdy once again, friends, and welcome to Larger for Life. Uh, this is your co-host amongst five, the least of the brethren, Derek Bright, and I'm here with the usual crew as we go into part two of our discussion of Westminster Larger Catechism, question seven. And if you tuned in last time, you'll know that this is a rich discussion, power-packed with a lot of glorious, Perry McCall, glorious truths. And uh, I know that we're all excited to get back into the discussion. So I'm going to kick it off to uh, kick the ball to Spin. Spin, what do you think about uh, this upcoming section of of, uh, question seven? Well, guys, you know, I'm so glad to be back from my uh, my spray tan appointment. You know, I-, I was getting my back hair done, and, you know, it's just so good to be back on the episode with you fellas and uh, talking about the doctrine of God. So you're finally, are you finished with your bouncy castle appointment? I mean, were there any kids there, or was it just you by yourself just having a good time? Uh, it was me, but, you know, I got a world champion belt. It was great. That's amazing. Thank you for that. Uh, we're, we're excited you're back with us. You were, well, I wouldn't say you were missed last week, um, but we're glad you're back. So, Sean, do you have any any thoughts to uh, tag on to, to spins there? Uh, I don't. I let's mean, not reference spin getting his back waxed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, our church had a picnic, a little summer picnic uh, last week. And you know there was a there was a bouncy castle there, but uh, I did not uh, I did not partake of said bouncy castle joy. My five year old was there, my seven year old was there, my toddler was on it, a bunch of other sweet little kids were bouncing around on there. But you know I kept my distance and uh, did not partake of the joy, unlike our friend uh, Mister Spinnenweber. I heard Brad Isbell was jumping on the bouncy castle though. Is that true? Can we affirm that? Deny it? Well, I have no photographic evidence, but I will neither confirm nor deny the presence of a certain ruling elder on said bounty castle. I mean, if you look at Brad, I mean, just look at him. He looks like he enjoys a bouncy castle. <laughs> I mean, he's just full of joy. I mean, he's got the joy, 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 joy down in his heart. I want to hear him sing that song now. So that would be glorious. He, he requests it every time we do a hymn sing at our church, and we have to keep telling him, Brother Brad, that's not in the Trinity hymnal. Stop it. Stop it. You know, there was this one time uh, Brad and I were in a bouncy house and he was telling me, you know, this bouncy house is infinitely perfect, you know, and what a good segue on into the larger catechism. What a good segue indeed. Amen. So let me reread the question since we're in part two of this wonderful catechism question, thinking about some of the attributes of God. Question seven, what is God? Answer, God is a spirit in and of himself, infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection, all-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth. And I mean, what, I mean, that, that catechism question has almost a lyrical quality to it. Having just read it out loud, I almost want to burst out and sing the doxology or it's just, or, or it's just wonderful, uh, moves you to worship. So, 
uh, perish the thought of anyone who says that the so-called scholastic uh, Westminster standards are somehow cold, aloof, and austere instead of warm-hearted and pastoral and and moving the heart to to biblical piety, because a question like that, that's just wonderful. Now, brothers, we got as far, if I recall correctly, as the word perfection. So God is a spirit in and of himself, infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection, semicolon. And we decided to to pause there and put a little bow on the last episode. So we're picking up with all-sufficient, eternal, and unchangeable. And we were having a little bit of discussion off the air before we started broadcasting or, or recording, I should say, that as we're thinking of these attributes, all-sufficient and eternal and unchangeable, there seems to be a this is coming at it from the vantage point of God's essence in and of himself. And then when we get to incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, and et cetera, it's almost as if those are coming from the vantage point of the perspective of the creature looking upon God. Now, I'm sure the argument can be made either way, but for the sake of for the sake of argument or for the sake of time, we'll we'll think of it on, along those lines just for starters. So incomprehensible, the creature cannot comprehend God. So that's that's to come later on in our discussion today. But we're starting to think with all-sufficient, eternal, and unchangeable. God in and of himself. God is all-sufficient. I'll, I'll offer a few thoughts here, and then I want to turn it over to the rest of y'all. This is getting into the attribute of God's aseity, uh, coming from the Latin ase. This is something many of us learned in our seminary days. And so for you, you lay folks, uh, listening in on that, if you don't, if you're not up on your Latin, fear not. What it's getting at is God's all sufficiency. That God is self-existent. God needs nothing. God is not dependent on anything. I am that I am, as He said from the burning bush in Exodus chapter three. I will be that what I will be. Uh, God, we are dependent on our fathers and mothers to create us from a human vantage point. We are dependent upon the air that we breathe, the water that we drink, the food of the earth to sustain us. God needs none of it. Uh, How many of us heard in our formerly evangelical days that that was part of the reason that God orchestrated our salvation? Because God needed us in some way. God needed uh, worshipers. God needed companionship. God needed followers. Well, Strictly speaking, God didn't need anything. God doesn't need the angels. God doesn't need the disciples. God is not lonely. God has no want. God has no lack. He is perfectly sufficient in and of himself as he exists in the ever-blessed Trinity, the Father delighting in the Son, the Son delighting in the Spirit, the Spirit delighting in the Father, uh, the Holy Trinity in and of itself is entirely all-sufficient, all-content, all-perfection. So this is one of the things we're starting to think about is God in his godness, the one who lacks nothing, needs nothing, and yet su- and yet is sufficient for everything for all, for we creatures who are in such need of him and the and the benefits and blessings that he produces. So there's a few thoughts to sort of jumpstart our discussion. What do y'all think? You know, as we come to this and we transition into the all-sufficiency of God, there's, there really is some order that the divines have provided for us. The infinity of perfection, okay, if God is going to be sufficient, needing nothing from anything, there's already been this positive assertion of the perfection of the constituent qualities of his eternal character, okay? And whenever you say something like that, we're talking about things that are his communicable attributes and his incommunicable attributes, uh, things like his infinity, uh, things like his transcendence, his uh, um, 
his holiness, all, all of the different parts of him, including things like his love, uh, including things like his anger. And so we, you really need to look at those things, uh, because when you talk about the sufficiency of God, this is really the ground for him being um, not changed or uh, moved upon by his creation. Okay. And so when we think about the love of God, for instance, and we talk about the infinite perfection of his love, all right, we're, we're not just saying that it's it's perfect. It, it, it's a, the full representation of love. We're saying rather his love is boundless. It's without limits. It's limitless. Uh, and it's infinite and perfect within that. Now, that's something we can't get our minds around, but it's really magnificent because his love is not contingent upon his creatures. His love is not uh, contingent upon his creation more broadly. It's a thing within him absolutely perfect. Same thing goes, therefore, with his justice. And we think about the justice of God and the standard of, its ju of his justice. Uh, well, uh, it's really the uh, complete, full, boundless expression of that which is right and good and equitable in the mind, heart, and person of God. Uh, that's why the sufficiency of God uh, would, would then be uh, a thing declared or stated out from the infinite perfection of God's justice, that God doesn't decide what's just on the circumstance or the situational ethic of, of whatever is going on. No, rather, the justice of God is perfect and can stand as a standard. And I think it's absolutely wonderful whenever we view these things in a connected relationship, um, because th there's so much comfort. Uh, this is the only way you're going to have an objective God with an absolute truth. If he is infinite in his perfections, that's the only way he's going to be all sufficient and independent of his creation and creatures. Right after all sufficient, it speaks about God being eternal. And, you know, it... I think that's uh, the first thing that jumps out to me is how wonderfully pastoral it is in, in the divine's framing and answering of this question, because how many of us have little children that come up to us and ask these things, whether it's our own children or children in the congregation? Uh, how many of us, when we were young children, if we were reared in a Christian household, ask the same question of our mothers and fathers? It's, it's a natural thing in one sense to think of because we are creaturely, because we are creatures who had a beginning and we will one day meet a mortal end. Uh, we, we this is the this is the, the the frame in which we think, and so we ask, where did God come from? Who made God? If 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 I came from mom and dad, if that building came from someone who constructed it, if that tree came because someone planted it, where did God come from? And the answer is, God came from nowhere. God is eternal. God has always been, and God always is, and God will ever be. And so that's the next attribute that the Catechism describes here, that God is all-sufficient. So again, we're thinking of his His blessedness and his perfection and his infinity, and part of, if you will, a, a, a subdivision or a subcategory of God's infinitude is his eternality. God is beyond time. God is outside of time. God is eternal without beginning or end. I think Brother Derek is leaning in to offer some of his thoughts as well. Well, I was going to say that um, there's that adage or or um, saying that whatever uh, begins to exist necessarily um, 
had to have, you know, an origin or a, uh, a creator or whatever the case is, but not so with God because he never began to exist. Right. And he is always uh, there. He is Yahweh. I am that I am. And this is actually really good news for people who struggle with the assurance of their salvation, because to quote Voss, um, he says that the greatest proof that God will never cease to love me lies in the fact that he never began. And what he means by that is if God has loved you with an everlasting love, if John 17 is true that Jesus, um, that God has loved us in Christ um, in the same manner as he loves the son. If all those things are true, then there was never a moment where God said, I don't love this person. And now I'm going to change and love this person. Right. Um, we were always chosen in the son and the son was chosen in eternity past, right. Ordained elect and eternity past. He's always existed with the father. And so, if you say, well, gosh, how do I know if God is ever going to stop loving me or if I'm truly saved? Listen, for all of eternity, long before you were ever created, long before this world was ever created, long before there was anything other than God himself, um, he had placed his everlasting, effectual, um, sovereign love upon you. And, and so because God is eternal, his love for you is eternal and unchanging and um, and never ending. So uh, this should offer a lot of comfort to the struggling and weary Christian. That's a great pastoral point. I was I was struggling to remember the source of that quote, so I'm glad that you quoted it uh, from Voss. But that's that's many a sermon that I've heard, and I'm sure y'all have heard as well, have made that point as well uh, to the great comfort of the soul of the Christian, uh, that God, strictly speaking, never began to love you. He always has, and so therefore it cannot end. Uh, thanks be to God. Yeah, God, God's eternality, uh, and Voss makes the point in his commentary that because of that he's above distinctions of time, that past, present, and future are all equally present to God. And, and this is this is where we're it, we're, we're trying to use finite mortal language to touch upon the incomprehensible, and we're, 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 we're pressing the limitations of the English language as we're butting up against the bounds of our comprehension to touch on the incomprehensible. How, we, we can't wrap our minds around that. How can, how can we be equally attuned and equally aware of past, present, and future simultaneously? Uh, we, we know our immediate present. Uh, we know our lived past as we've lived it. We don't know everybody else's past. Uh, we know human history's past as we study it and come to knowledge of it secondhand, but there's no way we can know the future. We have guesses and gut instincts, but to God, it's all equally known. It's as if it were all in the now. It, and, and again, even that language is insufficient because to, to attribute that to God because he is transcending, uh, transcendent of time and outside of time. But hence, the scripture puts it that to him one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as if it were a day. A couple years ago, I had a uh, theological student from Tübingen University, just down the road from where we live here in Stuttgart, Germany. And we, we had a Bible study, and we were talking about the eternality of God in, um, in A.W. Pink's book on the attributes of God. Just a wonderful short little volume. If, if you haven't got a copy, let me uh, encourage you to go and, and take one of those up and make use of it. But 
uh, he said to me, you know, I, I don't really know if the Bible teaches the eternality of God, which I'd never heard anyone ever say ever. Uh, that was new for me. And, and immediately the first thing that came to mind is that the Bible presupposes it. Uh, Genesis 1.1, mm. in the beginning, God. Yes. That's where it begins. Uh, there just is the presupposition that God is and has always been before the beginning began. Um, and, and I think it's so helpful because to me, it seems as though the Bible sees this as intimately united with his divinity. It is one of the most essential qualities of his divinity and a proof of his divinity. And for us, I, I do think that, you know, if we're really talking about a God, a powerful God, a creator God, any of these things, eternality should just simply be a first principle for us. Yes. It ought not to be a thing that we spend too much uh, brain power debating over because it's so far beyond us. But just to simply say, we believe it's there. We believe the Bible accepts it uh, as, as a wonderful truth. Yeah, I'm reminded of, you know, Psalm 90, from everlasting to everlasting, uh, you are God. Uh, and because he is everlasting to everlasting, what the psalmist says in, in verse one there is that you have been our dwelling place uh, for all generations, that this covenant faithfulness of God hinges upon uh, him being eternal. And, and the fact of the matter is that God absolutely has to be eternal, right? He has to be uh, above the distinction of time because time is a creaturally um concept uh past present future means that there's limits means that there's decay means that there's change uh means that there's even maybe we might say a process um and yet god transcends uh all of all of those things he's not subject to those things he cannot uh change he is not limited he uh, absolutely will not uh, decay. Um, you know, I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians 4 and 5 as, as Paul is talking about the, the mortal putting on the immortal and our tents being taken down here on this side of glory, but we're going to receive a, a house uh, not built with hands whose foundations uh, is built by the Lord himself. And I mean, it's this, it's this idea that that on this side of heaven, uh, there is a finiteness, uh, a finitude of, of, of creation. But God is so much more than that because he is the creator. No one has created him. Uh, and therefore, from everlasting to everlasting, he is God. He remains the same Um And uh, and that is a, a comforting, a comforting truth of the characteristics of our almighty uh, heavenly father that uh, in him is no change in him. There is no limits that he is alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end before the world was created. He existed and uh, in the new heavens and the new earth, he will always exist uh, as he glorifies his people and bask in our worship and praise. That's right. And this this ties in nicely with what we were talking about in the last episode. It's something you were just mentioning there, Matt, of because he because we are creatures and all we know is the existence of being time bound. 
and we have a definite beginning. I mean, even the angels being created beings, there, we, there's, there's nothing like God who is, who is in this category, which is why the great, the great and dreadful legacy of, of human civilization is, is trying to create these beings whom we worship that really are just an amplified version of ourselves. And that's something I think Derek was mentioning in the previous episode. I forget who, I, I forget the origins of this quote, but many a sermon has had it. Many a preacher has, has used this quip that, you know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he made man in his own image. And ever since, we have been trying to return the favor. We have been trying to return the favor. We're trying to remake God in our own image. And we make these little gods, these pathetic deities, human civilization has done, that we want to ascribe worship to. And we like to make them so time-bound and to have limitations and to be uh, malleable and moldable, much like we are. We're trying to return that favor of making a God after our own image and thus committing idolatry. Yeah. And I think um, I, there's a quote that comes to mind from David Wells, who says the fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is that God rests too inconsequentially upon the church. And it seems to me that the attributes listed here in the larger catechism help the church not to have that problem, right? I mean, um, we so often think so low of God. And as I've told my congregation before and others, you know, you're, you're, you'll never have the problem that you think too highly of God or you think too much of God or you think too much of his attributes. You'll never have that problem. I'll never come to you and say, you know, you just think so highly of God and that's a problem for you. You know, no, your thoughts of God are all too low. As, as Luther told Erasmus, your thoughts of God are far too human. And um, something like the eternality of God, that he doesn't go through any succession in time. He doesn't grow. He doesn't um, experience that kind of change. That helps us to lift our minds to a higher plane of thinking when it comes to God. That's right. And that's required, right? Um, we, we have to reorient our our minds that god is far beyond us much different than we are i mean you just i mean i've said it derek you just said it this idea of god being unchanging or unchangeable i mean you think about the the practical implications of that that his knowledge his thoughts his plans his character he they they all will remain the same forever um he he cannot he cannot change in his being, he cannot change. In his desires, he cannot change. He is, he is always perfect. Um, you know, James 1, I can't remember the verse uh, exactly, but there's no variation or, 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 or shifting shadow. Um, and then uh, Malachi 3, uh, for I, the Lord, do not change. Uh, I love what I love. I hate what I hate. Uh, my promises are, are what they are. My my judgments are what they are. My commands are what they are. My purposes are what they are. All things about God um, are unchangeable. Um, and that is so hard for our minds to, to, you know, even begin to scratch at conceiving. And yet um, our Bible speaks very clearly on, on this point. 
That's right. Uh, as you were reading that, I, I think of that that wonderful line from that Horatius Bonner poem. Uh, also, it's a, a hymn. Uh, I hear the words of love, and there's this line in there: "I change, he changes not. The Christ can never die." Uh, and it's just, it's what a <laughs> in all the upheaval for as a contemporary pastoral moment. Just in all the upheaval and the change and the vicissitudes and the fickle nature and the and and the warring factions that we are experiencing in the here in the 21st century what a comfort it is to have an unchanging utterly stable utterly reliable god um and as we think about his unchangeableness there's a couple of different directions that we could go with this i mean one of the things that first comes to mind is how it puts the lie to the doctrine of open theism and maybe we want to talk about that maybe we don't but also derek I, I know you have done a lot of reading and research and even writing on the doctrine of God and some of the contemporary discussions happening around the doctrine of God. Maybe you want to speak a little bit about this, of how the doctrine of God is so tied to his unchangeableness and some of the things that folks might be reading or hearing about these days where some of these expressions are 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 trying to chip away at God's unchangeableness, whether it's just through sloppy theological articulation, uh, if not outright undermining what do you think yeah um that's a that's so true and and this could be its uh, its own podcast uh, so i'll try to be somewhat brief here but um a lot of preachers and even theologians mean well when they use language that again it makes god sound more relatable more like us i'll give you an example um some people will talk about um the uh, that when we, when we suffer, God suffers, right? Or, um, you know, I was watching a TV show one time and uh, something unexpected happened and, and the, the character just said, uh, well, I thought God's plan was X, Y, and Z. And somebody said, well, it seems that God has changed his mind, you know, or, um, you know, uh, there's all, all sorts of things you could go in that direction where it makes God sound more like us, which that uh, the problem with that is that that makes God fickle. It makes him passable. It makes him um, something that uh, almost you could take the daisy. He loves me. He loves me not. Right. If God is able to change, then our uh, our uh, comfort and confidence in his promises um, are really not grounded, right? Malachi 3, 6, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. So what is the um, reality that we can about God that we can ground his promises in? How do we know that we will not be consumed? How do we know that our salvation is always intact and, and that we'll uh, never be in danger of losing our salvation? How do we know this? Because God does not change, therefore his promises cannot change. They must be fulfilled. And not only that, but when we attempt to use a language that speaks about God as if he were to undergo change, we are really inadvertently saying that God is not the best version of what he, he could be, right? And so... If we have a God who can change, can he change for the worse? Can he change for the better? I sure hope not. If God can change for the better, then um, you, you have all these questions about, um, okay, well, when he made a decision or when he did something, was that 
was he in a worse version of himself? Was, you know, is he going to regret that decision? Is, I mean, there's all sorts of things you could draw here. Um, but unfortunately, so many times today, and, and it's even in popular, well-respected evangelical literature, um, this idea of God being able to change and undergo change. And it's really detrimental uh, ultimately to your understanding of scripture and of who God is, but it's really detrimental to the Christian life, in my opinion. You know, to, to go on with where Derek has already been touching upon, uh, immutability, this, this wonderful doctrine, this is derived, uh, again, from the infinity of the perfections of God, okay? This is an, mm-hmm. a necessary consequence uh, of the reality that God's plans are, are perfect, um, they're, they're infinite, uh, there's nothing that um, could be done to improve them uh, or uh, to change them because they're already perfect in all of their attributes. And so you have these two different doctrines that are closely united, I think, in the Westminster's language of unchangeable. Uh, that would be immutability or the unchangeable nature of God and then impassibility uh, regarding the emotional life of God. Um, and, and both of those, again, rely upon the perfections of God, the infinite perfections of God. And as we talk about these things, you know, Derek's brought up this this real issue, and, and it's a, a thing that some theologians have answered, I, I think, I believe, biblically, in an, in an erroneous way. Uh, and that is to take where the Bible speaks uh, sometimes, like, for instance, Jonah uh, 3.10, uh, where God repents of the evil that he said he would do. Uh, the way the Bible speaks about God, these theologians will take it and they'll turn it towards an open theism that God is sort of pushed around by his creatures, uh, by a by a passive willfulness, in, in a sense. Um, but really, it, it, that doesn't pay good attention to how the Bible actually speaks about God, because you're talking about a transcendent being. And the Bible is completely fine using what we would call anthropomorphisms or anthropopathisms. That is something that describes God as having a body like he has a in the Hebrew. Uh, when it talks about him being patient, it says he's long of nose. OK, that's funny. God doesn't have a nose. He doesn't have a face uh, because he's a spirit. You know, we've already touched upon that in the previous episode. Um, the Bible's clear about this. He's a spirit. Uh, it talks about uh, God's arms, his hands, uh, all sorts of different things regarding God. These anthropomorphisms that morph or that speak of his morphe or his his body or image. But the papathisms are the um, the heart of God, or or in this case with, with Jonah 3.10, uh, about God's repenting of the evil that he said he would do. Um, you know, you're, you're talking about the, the infinite God and his action uh, and how he's engaging with his creatures. And it's using this this familiar language, this accommodated language of our creaturely form Mm -hmm. to try to describe the 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 directive change, not change, but the the directive, I don't know, diversity of the will of God, I think is maybe the way I would say it, Uh, that the Lord can go one direction and then in a moment move in his pre-designed planned, decreed direction with his creatures that for us can seem as if if, if God was our neighbor, boy, he, he was a guy that took a hard right-hand turn. He changed dramatically. Uh, and this is just a way the Bible speaks about God. Again, you've got perfect, infinite transcendence being communicated to finite 
creatures. And it's uh, it's a difficult thing, and the Bible speaks in the way of analogy. And this is one of the ways in which I think good biblical scholars have to hold the biblical text if we're going to be talking about God on the Bible's own terms. Yeah, that's good. It's really good. I think uh, Turton is very helpful here. Turton talks about how it's not God who changes, but it's like our circumstances that change. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why you can go from being a child of wrath, you know, the wrath of God being over your head to a child of God, the adopted son of the Lord. Um, how do you, how does that happen? Did God change? No, our standing, our circumstances changed in the eternal counsel of God. And so, uh, I, I think to something that Cornelius Van Til said, um, shout out to those who like Cornelius Van Til. He said something very helpful here. He said, we should be fearlessly anthropomorphic. And I know that can be um, abused and, you know, whatever, but um, I think as preachers and as Christians, as long as we understand and hold on to the classical attributes of God, we can be in our sermons fearlessly anthropomorphic because scripture is fearlessly anthropomorphic, right? I mean, it talks about God having feathers, but he's not a chicken, right? Um, Right. But the idea is really anthropomorphism really conveys, as Nick was saying earlier, conveys a larger doctrinal theological truth. Right. And so we can say um, that God has feathers and he'll cover you with his wings. Well, what is what is that really telling us about God? Not it's not telling us that he's a chicken, but what it is telling us is that God is the great comforter and protector of his people. Right. So anthropomorphisms really should elevate our thinking to a higher level, which in my personal opinion, elevates us to a more classical view of the doctrine of God. That's so that's, I mean, what a wonderful document this is, the catechism, because here (laughs) talking about this doctrine, this high and lofty, this strong doctrine, this maybe even bordering on esoteric doctrine. And yet there is, there is an ocean of pastoral comfort and tenderness to be found in this doctrine. And we've already hinted at already. I, I think again of that, the Horatius Bonner line, I change, he changes not. The Christ can never die. His love, not mine, the resting place. His truth, not mine, the tie. Because his love doesn't change and his truth doesn't change. It's utterly reliable. It is utterly dependable. You change all the time, Christian. I change all the time. We are fickle creatures prone to emotional upset and change of mind and change of attitude. I mean. I mean, that's why Spin isn't even on the show today, because he made fun of Derek's love of Taylor Swift. He made fun of him. He insulted him. And so we cast him out. We cast him into outer darkness. He's not our friend anymore. We kicked him off the show. We kicked him out of the bonds of friendship because uh, he decided to be to be rude and be a jerk. And so we and our fickle selves said, you're out of here, buddy. Yeah, my he- love of Taylor Swift changes not. And uh, th- that's all there is to it. It's an eternal, immutable appreciation and love for uh, Taylor Swift's music. So, but yeah, I mean, I'll just say one more thing. I I don't want to hog the time and and all that. Um, I mean, I do in my own pride. I want this to be all about me and my show and I'm just stuck with the rest of you guys. But anyways, that aside is uh, I love that you brought up that Horatius uh, Horatio Bonner 
line. And it goes back to something that I said earlier, Malachi 3, 6. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not, great is thy faithfulness, that great hymn. Yes. Is root, deeply rooted in Malachi 3, 6. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. We can trust God because he does not change. Unlike, unlike the God of Islam, who is fickle and can change. Yes. And is, you know, whatever the case is, um, we can actually trust Yahweh because he is unchanging. And because he's unchanging, we know that despite our changes, our ups and downs, our faults, our, our failures, our weaknesses, um, Christ truly can be strong in our weakness because he is immutably strong and immutably great. And uh, we need to, to just preach and pound the unchangeableness of, of our God. That's exactly right. He, he, his love, his truth doesn't change. You change. His love doesn't change. His love for you doesn't change. He will not cast you off because you had a bad day. He will not cast you off into outer darkness because you botched it badly last Thursday, Christian. Uh, this is, this is where these doctrines, this is part of where the rubber meets the road in the doctrine of God's unchangeability. He by his oath has sworn. He cannot violate himself. And so because he does not change, his people are ever secure. May you be comforted by that today, Christian. Nick, I think you're about to lean in and say something. Yeah, one of the things that I want to do is to take this and just show how the divines have been helpful to modern theology, okay? Because the the assertion of the immutability of God and possibly the impassibility of God within the catechism here, but in the standards more largely, they anticipate something that's coming, uh, this thing that has been called process theology, and that might be new language to you, but it's this idea that God is existentially or essentially becoming, that he in himself uh, not only can change, but does change both temporally and, and quite possibly, depending on what process theologian you are reading, and I don't advise you to read them, um, but uh, that, that God himself not only is temporally changing, but is within his essence becoming and changing and becoming different. And where this comes into, I think, clear focus for Christians today is that if you've got a God that's constantly changing, those ancient truths that God has revealed in his word become less reliable as time goes on. They become dismissible. Well, God was like that in the Old Testament. He's not that way in the New Testament. He's not that way today. That was the economy of God in his essential person, uh, you know, maybe in the medieval time, but, but really we're, we're a modern people and God has progressed. He has processed beyond that. And that's a real problem. And a lot of people say, well, who would say that? You know, you'd have to be quite extreme, uh, a wild progressive. Uh, but I do think you see this in the church today, and it, and it kind of shows itself. It, it doesn't matter if you're young, you're older, however, in the church. But somebody asserting, well, the classic doctrines of the church, every single uh, group of people, every single generation uh, needs to really restate um these things in their own terms. And some people, they, they just simply mean, wouldn't it be nice to have a confession, a good faithful one, but one that riffs off of the truths that the church has commonly held. However, others would like to simply say, let's rethink all these things. Let's put all of it to the test once again. Uh, let's, let's write different theology. Let's use terminology that's different than Trinity. Let's use terminology that's different than grace. Let's use terminology 
that's different than immutability, for instance. And there's a great danger because, in, in essence, they're denying that God is unchanging and that the truth of his being and the economy of his works are unchanging. They're saying not only can it be, but it's probable or possible that the truths that once were have now progressed and processed into something different because God himself has become different. And that's wildly dangerous within any corner of the church. And so, friends, I just kind of say to you, heads up, ears open, eyes open, uh, be aware and, and, and have some sense about you when you hear that kind of thing. That, that's a good word. When I was in undergraduate, one of the uh, courses that I took with one of my favorite professors, uh, we, we examined the, the school of thought of process theology and, and uh, open theism, not because we were fans of it. He was not advocating it, but he wanted us to be on our guard against it. And so we had to read guys uh, like Clark Pinnock and Greg Boyd and all some of those figures. And, and the, class, the class was called Contemporary Theology, but the professor said this class would be more rightly entitled Contemptible theology uh, because this is wretched stuff uh guys i know we're we're butting up a little bit against the time but i really would like to see if we could talk about the next attribute before before wrapping up this particular episode because i know nick you had some excellent thoughts off the air that we talked about so i wonder if we can get into that and then maybe maybe we'll kind of put a pause there after the comma and we'll jump into almighty with a, a, a subsequent episode but why don't we think a little bit about where the catechism question says not only is god unchangeable incomprehensible, but everywhere present. Let's talk about that for a few moments. Incomprehensible or everywhere present? Well, both and. I know you had some particularly, uh, I thought, particularly good thoughts on the everywhere present and how we need to be thinking about that uh, because omnipresence is is an attribute that we can kind of go, oh yeah, omnipresent, he's everywhere, got it, check, and move right along. But actually that speaks to uh, a number of issues that, that hang heavy upon us in these days. So maybe we should talk about incomprehensibility and his omnipresence here as we move towards something of a conclusion on this particular uh, episode. Sure. You know, I'll try to be brief because I want everybody else to, you know, kick the ball around a bit too. But the incomprehensibility of God, I I just want to say before we touch directly on it, uh, that this ought to be a precondition to do theology. You ought to begin to read your Bible, begin to think about God, accepting and expecting uh, that God is well beyond your grasp. Um, he's greater than all of your thoughts, than all of your rationality, uh, than all of your uh, faculty, if I may use such a you know a term. Uh, and, and that helps because that lets us do the kind of thing we we read in older theologians. You know, they, they get to a place and they just say these things, as Calvin would say, are unsearchable. Uh, we, we've peered into the sun so long, we've come up blind, the perfections of God, the eternality of his person, and uh, the, um, in, you know, all, all of these things, immutability of his character, of his being, these things are incomprehensible. He doesn't mean I can't know anything about it, but rather, I can't comprehend it all. I can't contain it. Um, it's a thing too large, too great, too magnificent to behold, uh, you know, to... Uh, to just think with David, the psalmist, for a moment, uh, you know, these things are too too great. These things are too glorious uh, to behold. And so, I don't know, I, I just want to encourage, you know, us as we do this podcast, but, you know, our listeners, all five of you, um, look straight into that one um, and accept it. I think it's so helpful uh, to simply be okay with 
not having the answer to uh, wonderful and uh, large spiritual truths and expecting that that's, that's where you're going. You're climbing a ladder, which you're, you're incapable of getting to the top of. Um, it's, a, it's a great heart posture, isn't it, Nick? I oh, mean, just to, just to think about, I mean, yes. you think about some of the Presbyterians' favorite uh, chapters of the Bible, uh, Romans 9 and 10, when we're talking about God's uh, sovereign election of, of his people. Uh, creating vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. And, and and Paul even questions those guys that would even, you know, write process theology. Why would you ever try to rationalize uh, something that you cannot understand? Why would you try to, you know, we might say put God in a box. Um, he is far beyond uh, our human comprehension. And therefore, as he says in, Romans 11, as he's concluding the, the hard doctrines, right? These, these, these doctrines that are, that are tough to comprehend, he says, we should actually break out in doxology. We should, mm. we should be, oh, the depths of the riches uh, of God's wisdom and knowledge. How unsearchable his judgment, how unfathomable his, his ways, uh, because quite frankly, his thoughts aren't our thoughts. And so, you know, it, that's, I mean, the temptation there for us is is to is to try to rationalize it, try to explain right. it. But some things are just far beyond our explanation, and we need to rejoice in that. That our God is not like us. Um, um, you know, we were talking about fickleness. Our God is not fickle. Mm -hmm. um, our, our our God is who He is, and we can we can rejoice in that as as His people. He will be just to His enemies, and He will bless His children. Um, that. That's, that's a good word uh, from our Lord. It is. You know, uh, Voss, J.G. Voss, in his commentary, he's, he makes some of these observations and a few Bible verses here. I mean, Nick, you were saying how I mean, our mind cannot contain or comprehend God. In fact, the universe cannot contain or comprehend God, much less my peewee little mortal mind. First uh, Kings chapter 8, verse 27, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. The whole created universe cannot contain or comprehend this infinite, incomprehensible God as, as if we could exhaustively understand him or describe him or ascertain him. If the universe can't do that, uh, woe to me, the mere mortal who thinks he could try to do likewise. You know, David writes the 139th Psalm, and, and it's a prayer, it seems to be. He says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. And I think sometimes people will let the sovereign illimited knowledge of God be something that would stand between them and prayer. If God knows everything, why pray, right? David takes it as a comfort. He takes it as a comfort. He, he recognizes that the incomprehensibility of the knowledge of God shouldn't stop him from praying, and it also ought to inform him that it's not as if God comes near to him in prayer, as if he can call down heaven. God's always with him. Rather, this is an opportunity for him to run to God like a child, to sit on the lap of his father, 
And it's just a wonderful thought. It's, it's a comfort to the child of God that the Lord knows more and is worth more than our minds or hearts can even get to. It's things that are just too wonderful, too high for us. Reminds you know, me of that quote from Anselm. You know, we conceive of, a, of God as a being than which no greater can be conceived. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a high and lofty view of God. Yes. He f- is the one who fills all in all. Scripture says, speaks in, Ephesians says of Jesus. He's the one who fills all in all. My goodness. You know, to hit the omnipresence, we can stay right there in that psalm that Nick just referenced, Psalm 139. In verses 7 and 8, David writes, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, uh, you are there. He, he is literally saying there is no place for me to go uh, that the Lord is not uh, present with us. And so, um, you know, not only does, does God fill all time, uh, not only is he transcendent above time, but he also fills all space. He is transcendent. He cannot be limited by uh, space. Um, it's, it's more craft that he says that, that he is above awareness. W-H-E-R-E-N-E-S-S. I like he that. He's above awareness. Yeah, I lo- you know, I, I, I love that. He, he is... He is present everywhere. That is such a, a comforting fact for David in Psalm 139. It's, it's a comforting fact for, for us as, as well. Um, and I, I want to say something about Lord's Day worship here, not to take away from the, the fact that our God is omnipresent, but that our God especially uh, is present in the worship of his people on the Lord's Day. You know, that that is... That is something that that is incomprehensible, right? I mean, it, it's that the spirit of the Lord is is present with us as we partake uh, in the ordinary means of grace, as we uh, pray, as we uh, observe the sacraments, as we hear God's word read and preached. He is especially there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the scriptures tell us, and so um, you know. You know, I, I use this often, um, and it's probably an old Southern Bible Belt kind of mentality here, but it's, you know, it's this question, well, if you could eat lunch with anybody uh, and sit and talk with them uh, and learn from them, who would it be? And and oftentimes the, the answer is, well, I would love to, to sit and talk and learn from Jesus. I would love to sit in the booth at the local uh, restaurant and, and meet with him and and commune with him and, and fellowship with him. And, and beloved, we have that on the Lord's day, right? Yes. Uh, in fact, what, what Jeff Thomas says in his book on the Holy spirit is because of the spiritual presence, the omnipresence of our God, especially on the Lord's day, we have something far better. Um, you know, I think he, he says something, I'm not going to be able to quote it exactly right, but he says something, you know, talking about the majesty of the disciples sitting at Jesus's feet there uh, as he expounds what a disciple is, what a kingdom citizen is on the Sermon on the Mountain. He says, because of 
God's word and his spirit uh, as it's as it's preached and, and read on the Lord's day. We have something far better for the spirit is with us and in us. Uh, the spirit is especially there as his people gather in his house on his day. Uh, and he speaks to us uh, and we receive with meekness that implanted word, James says. Um, and so, you know, when we're thinking about the omnipresence of God, we, we have to understand that our God is everywhere. Uh, he is with us and in us by his spirit. Um, but in, in fact, he is especially uh, there on the Lord's day in the Lord's house with the Lord's people as they worship in spirit and truth. And that's why the author of Hebrews says that we should not forsake the assembling together, um, but that we should uh, with much zeal uh, be in attendance both morning and evening of the Lord's day uh, so that we might worship God in the splendor of holiness so that we might experience his special presence. Um, it's remarkable. The invitation that God gives for us to to enter into his gates with thanksgiving and enter his courts with praise. That's great. That's that's right, Matt. And and you can understand I was thinking of it as you were talking just now as why the disciples were so gobsmacked there in the latter chapters of John when he says, you know, Jesus is right there with them. He's there locally with them and he says, "It is better for you if I go away. It's better for you if I leave." And they what, what are you talking about Jesus? You're here with us. You're it's you're saying it's good if you go away? Yes, that the comforter might come that the comfort of the Holy Spirit might come. It is better for you that I should depart, that he might come. What a remarkable thing uh, that is. And, you know, just to tie it together as we're starting to, to wind down, the omnipresence that he is everywhere present of that fact of God. It, it, we think back especially, but even in our own day, but we think back especially to the theological and philosophical world of the Old Testament, how this f would fly in the face of the conventional thinking of other world religions and and world faiths, that this God, the God of Israel, is everywhere present. Because when you when you speak to these pagan nations and their pagan deities, well, where's their God? Where's where Pharaoh is Osiris? Well, the statue's over there in the temple. Well, where is Zeus? Well, Zeus he's, he he might be in the temple, but he might be on top of Mount Olympus. Well, where's Dagon? Well, he's in that statue over there in his little palace. That's where that God is. Well, where's the God of Israel? He's everywhere present. And and Nick, I know you had some thoughts along those lines as well. So let me let me kick it to you as if you might want to expound a little further on that line of thinking. Well, that truth, the truth of the omnipresence of the God of the Bible was revolutionary in the ancient world. Absolutely revolutionary. Um, like Sean's saying, it's it's not even that they're, you know, just nationally based deities. No, no, no. They're they're actually like town based. They're actually like room-based. Yes. Um, or if you go into Southeast Asia, you come to realize they're not even just room-based. They're in a niche in the wall. Uh, and and it's it's a hugely significant thing. You have to go to that deity. That thing is quite limited. It has no uh, beneficial effect on you. And really, you're at no danger from it um, so long as you're not kind of right before it. And so uh, those are limited ideas of deities. It's, it's a significant thing. And whenever we encounter Yahweh, the God of the Bible, that's just completely blown away. Uh, God is always present, not just with his people, but in all places and at all times. He can direct the heart, uh, whether it's a Pharaoh turning it to stone or whether it's, uh, you know, the the leaders of, um, of Babylon 
making them righteously dispositioned toward the people of God for their provision and the reestablishment of the city of Jerusalem. Uh, this God can do anything, anywhere, at all times because he is the creator of all things. He upholds all things by the word of his power. And this was just absolutely revolutionary. And I'll tell you what, uh, there was this, this guy who thought he was God embodied, uh, a pharaoh of, of Egypt. And you know what? He came face to face with a God that could reach out and smack him on his little throne. Yes. And just say, oh, you, you pitiful, you pitiful thing. You're just a creature. You're, you're really nothing. And whenever the frogs came down and the locust and, you know, the flaming hail and all the other stuff, he, he came to recognize the, the limitation of his being and the false gods that he entertained. And people say, well, that sounds very ancient. That's, that's unique. But, you know, some of us, uh, a couple of us have kids and I, I see some of this come into play, at least, you know, maybe it's not their theology, but it reveals the theology I'm tempted toward mm-hmm. uh, my, my kids, my little boys, um, you know, whether they're, they're in trouble or they're sad uh, or sometimes when they're happy, they'll try to hide from me. We have a, a large home uh, here in Stuttgart and we have lots of little cubby holes. German homes are kind of that way. Lots of places to hide. And uh, my sons do something bad. Maybe they go and they steal mom's last Reese's pieces. You know, that's, that's gold <laughs> if you live abroad. And uh, they're hiding out because they don't want to get caught. Um, we treat God like that. We treat God like that. We think we can conceal our sins from him uh, as if he's some kind of landlocked deity. He's in his niche in the wall. He's limited. We are sovereign. We decide when we'll engage with him. He doesn't decide when he engages with us. And that's so false. We treat God that way in our sin and in our weaknesses. So like when we're sad, when my kids are sad, what do they do? They're, they're down. They're depressed. They don't always run to me. Sometimes they do. A lot of times they go run and they hide. And they're sobbing alone without me. We treat God that way. We try to anyway. In our minds, and our hearts, we want to conceal and hold our grieving to ourselves. And the reality is, is God is already present there with us. His eyes always been on us. Before we've even uttered the prayer, he's already known it. And that's such a wonderful, spectacular truth to us. That ought to be so pastoral for the people of God. Um, and so I just kind of want to say, you know, the way we conceive of God it has to be on this term. It has to be on this term for the sanctification of our soul, for the care and the keeping of the soul, uh, and for our progress in holiness, that God is always in the midst of all his creatures, and specifically his people in a very specific and special, particular way. That's, yeah. that's, such, a, that's such a good thought. I, I, think, I think Matt's going to bring us to a close here in a moment. So before he does that, I just want to thank Stephen Spinnenweber for all of his profound uh, comments and insights on today's show. It was mind-blowing, as always, and I'm glad that he was here to join us on the Derek Bright Hour uh, as, as, we're, as we're having this, this, this endeavor together. The Derek Bright Show uh, from the Derek Bright Institute. Um, and, and Spin, your contributions were marvelous, as always. Thanks a lot. You know, one of the things that, that Nick just did was make this doctrine so pastoral and and in uh, the collected writings of uh, James Henley Thornwell, I, I see him doing the very same things with some of these great doctrines, just making them so practical, so pastoral. And so, you know, I know that many people listen, you know, all five of them, uh, many people listen to our podcast and and we don't know their circumstances, right? I mean, we're a podcast, people are listening to it Um 
around the nation, maybe around the world. Maybe I'm giving myself way too much credit uh, ourselves way too much credit. But but know this, uh, James, James Henley Thornwell says that the whole earth has become God's temple in every place, a place of prayer. That's what the omnipotent. Uh, you know, omnipresence of God does that the whole world is his temple and every place, a place of prayer um, in your grieving, uh, in your running, uh, in your affliction, in your circumstance, you know, in the highest of heavens and the lowest of the bed of Sheol, uh, our Lord uh, is there and he is there for you uh, as his child. So Sean, go ahead and close us out. Well, folks, thanks for joining us today on our second hour as we've delved into Westminster Larger Catechism question number seven. It's a wonderful catechism question with with just oceans and oceans of doctrine to consider, and so we're just going to keep plodding along through it. We have no particular rush to get through these things, and so we're glad to just steadily work through these things and think through them with you. We thank you for joining us, and we hope to have you join us next time as we can consider the continual or I should say we continue to consider, if I can get my word straight, as we continue to consider some of these attributes of God as we make our way through larger catechism, question number seven. We're wrapping up this this episode with everywhere present, and after that comma comes the descriptor of Almighty. So we'll look forward to having you join us next time on part three of our discussion of catechism, question number seven, and we'll pick up with Almighty and continue to think about our great and glorious God together. So until next time, we'll see you then. You have been listening to Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism, brought to you by the Blue Ridge Institute and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about this podcast, please visit our website on Podbean at largerforlife.podbean.com, where you can subscribe to the show in the podcast platform of your choice and browse past episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter or Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow us at Larger for Life Podcast, and on Facebook, you can follow us at facebook.com slash larger for life. Be sure to tune in next time and join us again at Larger for Life. Larger for Life.